If you're regular, if you're regular here at Jubilee, you'll know that we've been preaching through uh, the, what the apostle wrote to two uh, of his of his early church leaders, Titus and Timothy, uh, addressing some of the pastoral issues, if you like, in the church uh, uh, about the church and the Christian life. You see, the two are very much one, aren't they? The Bible knows nothing about lone ranger going it alone independent Christianity, not at all. You see, being a Christian means being stuck into the community, uh, the family life, the sacrificial, transformational relationships, life uh, with each other in the church. As I talked about at the Jubilee football team uh, prize giving just a few days, a few um, the other night, um, you know, these are relationships together that challenge us, Jubilee, that encourage us, that motivate us to grow and to run, uh, to be a people together that God is calling us to be. The community on Teesside that changes communities that come face to face with this community. And so, it's, and, and, and the point of all this, the point of all this, this, these pastoral letters, is not just for ourselves, is it? It's not just for ourselves, but actually it's for the good of the town. It's for the good of the nation. It's for the good of the, nesh, uh, the nations. As the former Archbishop of Canterbury, long time, uh, quite a bit ago, uh, Archbishop uh, William Temple, he said the church is the only organization that does not exist for itself, but for those who live outside of it. That's very much our heart. Open Door is just one example of that. So that's been the point of looking at the Apostle Paul's pastoral letters. Over the last few months, we've looked at what the Bible says about the importance of doctrine, about freedom in Christ, about contentment in Jesus, about family, about leadership, about transformation, how the gospel changes us, about wolves and people who come into into our lives, straying us away from Jesus, uh, about roles in the church. Uh, Last week, I think, Sarush spoke about gifts uh, that God gives us. You see, we can either choose, and this this picture really spoke to me prophetically as I've been praying, um, you see, we can either choose to live our whole lives like wriggly little caterpillars hiding away under leaves or, or, or staying in a cocoon, not really making any difference at all. We can live like that. Or uh, kind of not being noticed or um, not really making any impact anywhere. Or we can be butterflies. We can be butterflies soaring high, declaring God's beauty, declaring the wonderful work of Jesus in our lives. And and, and as I was kind of looking out our glass window and seeing some of this, I just felt God really said that God wants us, Jubilee, to be soaring and flying. The big question, I guess, we need to ask ourselves as we look at these letters, these letters aren't just something that we're studying or something that we're just kind of passing the time with. As we look at these letters, um, um, the big question, I believe, that God wants us to ask ourselves to reflect on is this. In the places where God has put you, in the places where God has put you and me, can others spot the difference? Can others spot the difference? You've played those games, you know, uh, spot the difference in kids' magazines or, or books. Can people see in your life, uh, your, str- your neighbours on your street, other people that you come into uh, contact with, can they spot the difference? Or is it really, really difficult to do so? 
Can they spot the difference in the way you speak, in the way you behave, in the way you live, in the way you date others, in the way you uh, spend, in the way you uh, parent, in the way you um, are married, in the way you Facebook, all these things are ways that God asks us to be different in the world we live in. And so as we go through these letters, um, I just feel God says, look, go back through them. Go back through these letters and start asking yourselves, can, can others spot the difference? Philippines says this, that we are to shine among the world around us like stars in the sky as you hold firmly on to the word of life. That was a real, that was a prophetic verse that God spoke to me as I saw Jesus in Charlotte's life over 20 years ago now or however long. And, and, I, and it's a very powerful thing for me. That's challenging, isn't it? Spot the difference. That's challenging. Um, certainly when I was thinking about it, I was thinking, gosh, am I really that different? Yeah? But God wants us for other people to spot the difference in our lives. Are you going to continue to live the life of a caterpillar or are you going to be a butterfly? Think about it. And so this morning we're going to be talking about another pastoral topic, if you like, which I've entitled The Battle. Yeah, The Battle. We spoke a little bit about that uh, when I went through Gideon's battle, the Midian, the Battle of Midian uh, a few weeks ago. Battle actually is a common biblical theme if you read the pages of the Bible. I remember when we were doing our marriage prep, Harold and Dillis uh, said to us, before we, as, just before we got married, she said, some, some 13 years ago, she said, your new lives with Jesus won't be like a battle, but will be a battle. That's what she said. Not like a battle, it'll be a battle. And we didn't quite get the enormity of that, um, but boy, she was right. Arthur Wallace, uh, a Bible teacher, he wrote a book, an excellent book actually, this book, um, Into Battle, it's called. Um, and he wrote this, he says, The call to Christ is a call to arms. The Christian life means warfare. There is no room in Christ's army for those who want to play at Christianity, seeking the thrills and the frills, I like that, but shirking the cut and thrust of battle. That's what he said. And so one of the marks of Christian maturity, I would say, is to realise uh, the truth of this more and more as God takes us into the battle, as God sustains us in the battle, and as God shapes us through the battle to be mighty warriors, declaring him and all of his goodness and salvation. So let's read it, shall we? Let's read 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 10. You then, my son. No, I don't think it's meant to be read like that. You then, my son. It's a very affectionate term. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Some of you older guys, I fit into that category just about now. Some of you older guys, are you doing that? Are you entrusting the Word of God in your life and taking younger people on a journey? That might be your kids. That might be other people's kids. Join, in, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. 
Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive the share of crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Remember, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, good news, joy news, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, and they too, that they too might obtain the salvation, the freedom in Christ um, with eternal glory. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for these great scriptures. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for these um, uh, wonderful writings, these truths that you have uh, called men and women across the ages to put down in the Bible, the Bible we read today. I thank you, Lord, that the Bible is God-inspired, God-breathed. I thank you, Lord, that we take these scriptures seriously, not just as good advice, but actually life to us. Your word, word from God, that brings life and salvation and kingdom advancement uh, for your glory. So we pray, Lord God, as we go through this chapter, uh, this, ver- uh, this section of um, um, the pastoral letters, I pray, Lord God, you will change us, change others, and therefore change the world around us. Come, Holy Spirit, Spirit fill us afresh this morning as we uh, unpack the word of God. Thank you, Lord. So, three things this morning um, uh, as we look at this passage. Firstly, Jesus, Jesus calls us to battle. See verse 3? It says this, Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ. Not the greatest invitation, is it? Hands up, Jubilee. Who wants to join me in suffering and persecution and insults and toil and sacrifice and hardship for maybe, I don't know, the next 20 years? Anyone out there? Hands up. Not many hands up going up. That's the invitation that Paul is declaring to Timothy, isn't he? He's real. Join me with, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You see, being a Christian means, means facing trials and suffering and actually demonic attack of many kinds. We don't often speak about the demonic attack in Jubilee. And it's not an if, but actually it's a when and how much. That's how, that's how the Apostle Paul is writing here. And, if, and, 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 I, and I would say, as I've reflected on this, and I've particularly reflected this in my life, if that's not a reality for you, then there's a good possibility that you might be on the edge somewhat, the edge of his call in your life, that the outworking of the gospel in your life has been watered down somewhat. It protects you. And that Jesus might be calling you actually to greater adventures of faith in God, which you might be holding back on. If that's not your experience of the Christian life. I remember when I first became a Christian in York some 16 years ago now, one of the preachers at the church um, I used to go to said to us, you know, if all of this Christianity stuff turns out to be mumbo-jumbo, if at the end of it all it turns out not to be true, then at least you'll have lived a good life. 
an honourable life. At least it will have had some positive effect in your life. Because that's what Christianity produces, uh, doesn't it? It produces forgiving, humble lives. So whether it's true or not, it doesn't, it's, it's not that important. So if you're thinking about Christianity, if it's true or not, it's not actually that important. So if you're thinking about Christian, you may as well give it a go because you've got nothing to lose. That statement, scarily really, sat comfortably with me for quite a few years after I became a Christian. But it changed when I read, when I read and really understood the Apostle Paul, the same Apostle Paul, what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. He said something which really sounded totally opposite to that. He said, he said if the resurrection of Jesus isn't true, and, and there's no life beyond what we see here and now, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. That's the opposite, isn't it? If you think about it. The Apostle Paul is saying here, if our hope in Jesus proves false in the end, if it is a lot of mumbo-jumbo, we believers, you lot, me, are to be pitied most of all. Not if it all turns out not to be tr- turns out to be false. Then you know what have you got to lose? That's not what the apostle Paul was thinking about the gospel. Not at all. That's belittling it. You see, as Westerners, and many of you I know, I was just watching this morning and looking at all the different different faces that we see across this church. But and so many of you are not Westerners actually. Um, but as Westerners in the UK, we have. We, we, we live a very sheltered, if you like, Christian life, relatively. I, I often thank God, actually, that this nation doesn't torture and persecute Christians like many other nations do around the world. In fact, that was the key theme of the parliamentary breakfast that I went to a few uh, weeks ago. It was about persecution of Christians in the Middle East. For the Apostle Paul, and probably for the majority of people, Um, around the world where Christianity is flourishing and thriving and growing at phenomenal rates. Actually, being a Christian wasn't, isn't an invitation to a better life. It wasn't, isn't uh, an invitation to increased comfort uh, and, and, and ease, if you like. To Paul, no, not at all. To Paul, the Christian life following Jesus meant a life of chosen suffering and hardship and battle. That's the invitation. And possibly the most famous passage on Christian battle theology, if you like, and that's nothing to do with Star Wars or anything like that. Spiritual warfare, we call it. Ephesians 6, Paul writes this, Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not only against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If I started talking like that at work, I'd get sacked. His newfound faith was a call to be on the front line, wasn't it? To engage in what theologians call spiritual warfare. But this this wasn't a a studious desk activity, an academic concept to read about in page 1,534 of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. It wasn't like that. This This was the Apostle Paul coming face to face with demonic setback 
with spiritual attack. This was real. He lived it day by day. This wasn't a subject that, as we sometimes do, that he tiptoed around worrying about what the world would think about him. It was actually how he viewed the very world and the situations that were going on around him. It was a very sophisticated, it was a very open view. Andrew Del Banco, Andrew Del Banco, um, he's actually a philosopher who openly says he doesn't believe in God at all. But he says this uh, about evil and demonic activity. He says, the repertoire, the diversity, the many different kinds of evil out there has never been richer. There's lots of it. Yet never have our responses been so weak. Evil tends to recede, hide away into the background of the hum of modern life. We cannot readily see the perpetrator, the one who causes it. So the work of the devil is everywhere, but no one knows where to find him. That's a non-Christian. That's a didn't right, didn't believe in God. That's that's his understanding of the world around us. In trying to explain the world around us, the Bible goes deeper. It does. It's not just about bad systems or the Conservative Party or Boris Johnson or Donald Trump or remaining or leaving, in the, leaving the EU or genes or bad brain chemistry. These are important, don't get me wrong, these are important things that Christians need to engage in. But they cannot explain everything that's going on in the world. Over the centuries, we've actually tried to put a lot of these things right. But is it all getting better? Jesus said this. Um, Jesus said this. There's another invitation. It's throughout the Bible. Jesus says it. Apostle Paul says it. Jesus said this. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. He also said, you'll be betrayed even by parents and brothers and sisters and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. We don't often talk about that on Alpha. Point taken, Jesus. The Christian life is a battle. Being part of a Bible-believing, Jesus-following, vibrant, active, out-there church is actually a call to fight. We don't go out looking for it, so sometimes you know, we can go all the other way and get a bit crazy about these things. We don't go out looking for it. We don't revel in it. We don't go in and go, oh, isn't this great? More thrashings, more beatings. No. But we're also not surprised by it. When life isn't going well, when church isn't going well, when situations aren't going well, uh, because, because of who we are as believers, don't be shocked, Jubilee. That's the battle. Read the Bible. So how do we battle? How do we battle? Well, this passage doesn't answer the whole question, but it does give us three metaphors, three pictures, if you like, of uh, three kinds of people to help us understand what it, do- what it takes to battle, what it takes to get through. Three people. What, can you remember what they were? Who were the three people? An athlete, a soldier, and a farmer. They don't seem to all kind of come together very nicely. An athlete, a soldier, and a farmer. He's actually talking about a dedicated soldier, a law-abiding athlete, and a hard-working farmer. So just let's spend a few moments looking at those three things, looking at why Paul uses these what seem relatively random um, people 
in terms of helping a suffering church get through. Firstly, the dedicated soldier. Um, Verse uh, 4, no one serving as a soldier, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Paul was in prison a lot, wasn't he? In fact, um, quite, a, quite a few of the letters that we read, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul writing, um, are from prison. In fact, I think this is, this is certainly one of them. Over the years, the Apostle Paul will have seen many soldiers. In his writing, we see him regularly meditating, thinking about the parallels, the similarities between a Christian and a soldier. That a soldier that a soldier knowingly, willingly chooses a life of battle for for the greater good. He is focused both in mind and heart as he goes through what he goes through. A soldier must have these qualities. Um, um, a, A dedication that allows him to fight in very difficult situations. Dedication, perseverance, focus, free from the entanglements of civilian life. That's what it says. And then there's the athlete, isn't there? Verse 5. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. I remember Tom sharing in one of our community, just got to get in my mind now, Tom shared in our community group about running the race as an athlete a few months ago, years ago, ages ago. Um, but this is a bit different. He, in Paul's day, um, competitive games were a key to the social fabric, the social enjoyment of, la- of Greco-Roman life. There was great skill and strength displayed as competitors battled it out in front of the shouting crowds in the big amphitheaters. But strength and skill alone, and this is what Paul's getting at, didn't get you the prize, the evergreen wreath of, uh, of victory on your head. There weren't, there weren't gold medals or champagne then. As the late John Stott explains, but no athlete, however brilliant, was crowned unless he had competed according to the rules. No rules, no wreath was the order of the day. That's what John Stott says. Discipline, obedience was essential. Discipline, obedience was essential. And finally, there's the picture of the hard-working farmer, isn't there? The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive the share of the crops. Um, myself and Charlotte live in a place um, where we meet a lot of farmers around us, actually. Um, some of our friends are farmers, school friends, parents, etc., are farmers. And do you know what? The thing that I've noticed over the years is that a farmer's hands look very different to mine. These are hands that never do dishes. They do, really. Have you noticed that? Farmers' hands look different. Thick skin, cracks, rough, well-used hands. Not like mine. Not like John John's. These guys work hard. They toil from dusk to dawn, especially during key seasons of farming. They're out there slogging their guts out, day in, day out. Hard working. And Paul says... As as he looks at these three people, as he describes these people, he says, reflect on what I am saying for 
for the Lord will give you insight into all of this jubilee. Jesus wants us to have these characteristics as we fight the battle, as we go through the suffering life of a Christian. Jubilee, Jesus wants us to have a true perspective on the Christian life. He wants us to recognize that in battle, in the life that we live, in the reality of this sin-torn spiritual warfare, news at ten kind of life we live, God puts us in. These are the characteristics that God is asking us to grow and nurture in our lives. These are some of the characteristics that keep us going, that get us through, that lead us more and more into the presence of God, actually, that bring about worship in our lives. These characteristics. A life of dedication to our commanding officer, Jesus and all he calls us to, through thick and thin, however difficult, however surprising, however unlikely that may seem. A life of perpetually throwing off those things that it says in Hebrews that distract us, that take us away from uh, Jesus. Sin and entanglement so easily uh, walked into for temporary pleasure. Watch out. Don't go there. A life of faith-filled, grace-motivated, gospel-infused, joyful, and I've deliberately put all those words before it, obedience. Not rule-keeping for the sake of just keeping the rules. That won't last. No, something much greater. Life-changing, actually, what the Apostle Paul uh, calls the obedience that comes from faith for his, for his Jesus' namesake. Obedience that comes from faith trusting, loving Jesus. A life of perseverance. Battles require toil and hard work. That is just the way it is. If you think that's not going to happen, it is. This is where our togetherness is so important. Comradeship is essential to battle. It's my brothers and sisters in arms that help me through, us through. Thanks, Dennis, Paul Winston, Simon, Sarush, Gavin, Luke, Jonathan at a wedding, Andy, Matthew, uh, others, guys who encourage me, guys who instill courage into me, my community group, those who pray for me, us regularly, Les was just praying for me there, Um, um, those who bring prophetic motivation, those um, those who I go to for wisdom, thanks. Thank you for being there for me. It's really important. Who are those people for you? Who are those people for you? The question I want to ask then, because we might pray into this at the end, where's the battle for you? Where's the battle at the moment? And think about the future too. Where's the battle for you? You see... It could be being single, being an asylum seeker. It could be being ill or depressed. It could be being generous enough. It could be being faithful. It could be being married. It could be being a parent. All these can be battles, can't they? These are the battles of our day-to-day life. Paul says, reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight. This is so important. It's what prayer is all about. A reflection that results in Holy Spirit-empowered action. A reflection where God comes in and changes us. A reflection, uh, a prayerful reflection where we see differently, say say things differently. A a, a prayerful reflection that changes us through 
through and through, brings about faith. That's what Paul is saying here. He's listing a whole load of things. He's calling us to battle. And then he says, pray, pray, pray through it. I love that film. I haven't seen it yet, but I love the title. It's about a lady who prays, I think, for... I don't know who she prays for, but, um, but the, the, um, the title of the film is called War Room. It's about a life of prayer. Yes, Jubilee, the battle's hard. Yes, the battle's tough. Yes, the battle's painful. Yes, the battle costs. But let me tell you this and hear this. It is only in the battle that victories are won. Did you hear that? It is only in the battles that victories are won. Therefore, Jubilee, let's battle. Let's battle together, shall we? Are we up for that? And finally, thankfully, we're nearly done. The greatest encouragement and strength of all, however, is that we don't battle alone. We don't, do we? We battle with Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. See verse 8. At the end of this, what does he say? He scares you all with battle. He says, this is going to be tough work, guys. And then he says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David, the historic Messiah that was promised way, way back on page one of Genesis. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. That's what was happening to Paul. These are probably the last words that Paul ever wrote before Nero, I think, chopped his head off. Serious words. But he says, remember Jesus Christ. He is our victory. He is. The one who suffered for us, the one who conquered sin and death, the one who suffered, uh, the one who uttered his victorious battle cry on the cross, it is finished. This is the crucial difference when it comes to suffering as Christians. This is so unique. There is no other faith that describes suffering like this, that describes a suffering God who's at the centre of everything we trust and believe in. There's a true story in the Bible. This Bible always reminds me of this. In the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, Daniel 3, from around 600 BC, before Jesus was ever uh, uh, born, uh, where King Nebuchadnezzar ordered that a statue be built in his honour and that all the peoples of Babylon, including Yahweh believers, were to come and worship at the feet of this gold statue, him. Anyone who didn't, he said, would be thrown into a fiery furnace alive. And if you know this historical story, three men didn't. Three men didn't compromise their faith in God. Three men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, couldn't, wouldn't bow down to any God but but the God of Israel, our God, Yahweh. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, in a fit of fury and rage, prepared um, the hottest furnace he could and threw them all in. But, to King Nebuchadnezzar's absolute amazement, he saw something he couldn't believe. His eyes were showing him. This is what it says in Daniel 3. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement, and you would, and he asked his advisors, Weren't there three men there that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, 
Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unarmed, and the fourth looks like the Son of God. Who was that person? Who went into the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Same person who goes into our fires. Jesus, the Son of God. Notice that this story doesn't say Jesus stopped them from being thrown into the fiery furnace. The Bible is full of stories where that doesn't happen. Surely he could have done that. The Son of God could have done that. No, it says this. It says that Jesus went into the fiery furnace himself to save them. He was with them in right in the midst of the battle. Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable, far off, distant, out there, unable to empathize with our weaknesses. He does. Jesus, Jubilee, this is the wonder of our Jesus. This is what makes Christianity so unique. This is what I was explaining to my Canadian auntie who came over, my mom's sister, um, as she stayed with us for a few days. This is the gospel that I was kind of explaining to her. He is a God, and um, He, Jesus, is a, God, is, is a God who suffers alongside us. He knows what it's like. He has the battle scars on His wrists and His hands, on His side, on His back, on His front to prove it. Jesus was tortured and crucified for you and me. He took hell into His soul. He took our sin and scars and guilt and condemnation or that all of our disregard and disobedience of God deserved, our go-it-alone attitude uh, and life, our pride, our self-righteousness, our independence from our Creator, everything that separated us from a holy, perfect God, He took on the cross. He took the punishment of that. He defeated and destroyed all these barriers on the cross. So now, in our suffering, like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, we will never, ever, ever be alone in the fire. We have a God, we have God himself. There is no greater fortification and encouragement than that. If you're in the fire this morning, there are people who are in the fire. There are also people who are going to be in the fire. And there are also people who have been in the fire in the past. But if you're, if you're in the fire this morning, this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.8, and this always encourages me, because my suffering is never as big as Paul's suffering. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. This is what the Apostle Paul was going through. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's the battle. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril that he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope, and he will continue to deliver us. That's the victory. That's the victory. There's a day coming for those who trust and treasure Jesus as their God. When victory, when the victory will be totally complete. At the end of the age, when Jesus returns, all injustice, poverty, suffering, sickness, mourning, tears, fear will be no more. There's a day coming for those who have taken the cross into our very soul 
uh, of singing and dancing and jubilation and celebration and joy unimaginable. That's for sure. That day is coming, Jubilee. As it says in C.S. Lewis's, the final pages of C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, the last book actually, the, the last battle it's called, it says this, all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's our hope. That's our certain hope and future. But until then, we battle. We persevere. We toil. We live out faithful obedience to what it means to follow Jesus. But not without hope, not without purpose, and not without courage. We are more and conquerors, the Bible says. I'm going to stop there. Oh, actually, there isn't another. I don't think there is another slide. I'm going to stop there. I just want to read. This, this, this book is brilliant. This book is brilliant. I just want to read the last uh, few lines, and then we're going to pray. Okay, we're going to pray. So God says we need to pray people in the battle, through the battle, sometimes out of the battle for seasons. We need to pray. That's the battle. That's the biggest, one of our biggest battle weapons, actually, prayer. So I believe we're going to, I think we should pray for one another. This is what it says. This hope that sustains saints and martyrs, I'm going to get emotional reading this. This hope that sustains saints and martyrs in their darkest hour will do so to the end of time. Men may take away from the Christian his position his property, and even his very life. But they cannot rob him of his hope that Christ will surely come, that his fidelity will be rewarded and his faith vindicated, that the end will be certain victory. As Peter would say, this, as Peter would say, this is no cunningly devised fable or made-up story, but sure, but sure and sober truth. Let it fill your vision, Jubilee. Fortify your faith. Purify your heart. Steal you for the fight, steal the metal. And then, having fought to the end, you too will stand with Christ at last, victor on the battlefield. Let's stand. Bobby can come up, that would be great.